Have you ever been in a place where you've had your back against the wall and maybe you weren't the most pleasant to be around? Anybody ever before, like yesterday or the day before? Perhaps you have said something like I have out of frustration or anger that kind of came back around to bite you in the buttocks. I'll tell you that the two of the dumbest things I've ever said were to my wife and not only that to my pregnant wife. And I'm not going to tell you what I said, but let's just leave it at this. Don't try to encourage your pregnant spouse while she's eating Velveeta macaroni and cheese that she should have no issue putting on weight for the pregnancy. It's probably not, it's not, it's not going to help. I promise. Um, Lucky she didn't hit me with a frying pan. But here's the thing. You know, when you're having kids, uh, you don't always know how to prepare for that. You don't always know, speaking of grace, you don't always know what to say or how to act. Same thing might be in your workplace. When you're a little bit stressed and you have a lot of things upon your shoulders, you might act a little differently than normal, a little short, a little cynical, maybe uh, a little bit um, ugly, but you might actually lose it and blow up completely, right? So it happens. But I think of what, regardless of what we say or do, the most important thing is how we respond. Now, every one of us understands kind of this idea of apologizing, asking for somebody's forgiveness and saying, I'm sorry. It was taught to us when we were little kids by our parents, hopefully. And that doesn't mean that we're really good at it, but I think we understand the concept of saying sorry. Uh, There's a lot more to healthy relationships, though, than just saying sorry when we mess up. We're all kind of working it out as we go. We're making little improvements, hopefully, along the way. And there's a lot of resources out there to help us better understand what healthy relationships look like. But, of course, none more so than the Bible. And today, our dear friend Paul of Tarsus is going to lend us some heavenly counsel and some wisdom that I think is really going to benefit us all a ton in our relationships. So when you become a new believer, when you have fully surrendered your heart to Jesus and made him Lord of your life, uh, your life changes in a moment, specifically your eternal life, right? You have changed the trajectory of what will happen with your soul and your spirit for time forever in the future. But rarely does your life style change in the exact same moment. Before we were disciples of Jesus, we're essentially working toward our own end. We're making uh, decisions based on our own discretion, what makes the most sense to us. And it's kind of a self-serving attitude. Now, does that mean that non-Christians can't be gracious and loving and kind and do great things? Of course. But becoming a true disciple of Jesus means that we have a new boss calling the shots. And it's no longer living to please ourselves. It's living to bring honor to God through biblical living. And so today we're going to look at the third chapter in the book of Colossians. Now, in this letter, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. And it's appropriately titled, Living as Those Made Alive in Christ. And what you'll see in these verses is a case where Paul's sort of redefining what Christian living is looks like and how we're supposed to live when we're all in with Jesus. It's healthy spiritual living, I think is a great way to say this. And this is one of those scriptures that you can just go back to every now and then because it answers these two questions. How are we supposed to think and act according to God? And 
what did God intend for healthy relationships to look like? So this is sort of a playbook about how the life of a disciple of Jesus sort of ought to look and how we think and how we act and how we do life together with others. How many remember the long nights you had raising children, little kids specifically? Some of us, it's a little bit longer ago than others, but do you remember trying to console that inconsolable infant? Maybe a colicky infant, try to get them to stop crying. And do you remember with that toddler trying to teach them that everything is not theirs and that it's not okay to say no to mommy and daddy? And do you remember a little bit older, your children, trying to teach them how to read and write and add and then do all those sorts of cool things? And then do you remember a little bit further down the road, the point in time when those um, bright young people realize, help you realize that you're no longer cool enough for them, nor do you know more than they do? And they're, they're uh, a little bit smarter than you. I, they, at some point in time, they all, we all think we know everything. We think we have it figured out. And you might be saying to me, Brian, well, how, how do you know? You only have you know, three little kids under eight. Well, interestingly, some number of years ago, 16 or 17 years ago, uh, my mother passed away and I took custody of my, my younger sister who was uh, 14 years old and she was clinically bipolar. And um, that taught me a lot. And most of all, it made me realize that I, I had really no idea about how to raise uh, a kid, let alone a, a, a bipolar teenager. Um, they're going to make their own decisions. We can love them, guide them, direct them, but they will ultimately become an adult and they will make their own choices. And so sometimes it's, it's difficult to um, process that. But there's a process that Christians go through and it's called sanctification. And the way God talks to us, the way he exhorts us is much like a parent teaching a child. Many times with our, our little ones, it's two steps forward and one step backward. And it takes a lot of patience to raise children, and and it takes a lot of patience from God to sanctify us. That means to make us more like him. And I think it's to be expected with us that we might take several steps forward, and then we might take some steps backward. It's a process, and it takes time, and it takes understanding. Are there real-life examples of little kids who are just consistently gracious and diligent and listen really well and always do what their parents ask? Not in my house and not me, but I mean, we have some good kids. But by the same way, when somebody gives their heart to, to Christ, it's a journey. And there are some that have a radical transformation, some whose lifestyle does change dramatically pretty quickly. But for others of us, it's a process from the moment we submit our lives to him to the day that we leave this earth. But Paul, speaking here in this uh, book of Colossians, is pretty clear about clean living. So at the onset of this letter, Paul begins with two words. He says, since then, okay? And if you're familiar in the the computer programming world or or sort of the science world, you know that if-then statements, sort of they sort of mean, all right, if this scenario happens, then this scenario will happen. Or if this is is the situation, then, then do this. And so he follows this introduction with this sort of phrase, do this. Okay, saying, since then, do this. Well, here's what this means. I want to start in Colossians 3, 1, uh, and verse 1 and 2. So he says, since then, and here it is, you have been raised with Christ. Since then, you are now a Christian, a follower, a disciple of Jesus. Set your hearts on things above, 
where Christ is seated at the hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. And what I like to call this is positional thinking. So some of you think about your, your job. Maybe, maybe you know, you're a worker or you're a manager. What are you thinking about when you're working? You're thinking about roles and responsibilities. You're thinking about culture. You're thinking about executing the game plan. You're, you're thinking about management of people or tasks. Think about position in, in heaven. If you're, if you're positionally thinking about where you're going to be th- for the rest of eternity, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about the things of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, God's economic system. If you're at a Rockies game, what are you thinking about? Probably how the, how the Nuggets are doing, I, I would guess. So... <laughs> Positional thinking. That's what I want you to hear. Let's go a little bit further. Colossians 3, and here's verses 5 and 7. This is what is going to start to get a little bit edgy, okay? Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways... In the life you once lived. And so here you see Paul referencing at the end there the former life. When we, when we used to be our own boss, how did we live and, and what, was, what was the outward manifestation of how we think and act? And by the way, there's probably like three or four sermons right here, but we're going to stay focused. Paul states that we're not to succumb to such deeds and actions. Yet you may find it interesting, like I do, that in Romans 7, 5, going back to the book that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, Paul said that the law provokes or arouses the sinful nature. It's kind of a controversial claim, I think, but, but Paul goes on later in the book of Romans to make us aware that um, the, the law helps us realize what sin looks like, but he says it also increases our appetite for that sin, thought about this for a moment, and, and what comes to mind is the metaphor that, that Scott uses oftentimes about, you know, don't, don't touch the wet paint. It's a sign that, that as soon as, I was, you know, he always says, I wasn't thinking about touching the wet paint until I saw the sign. I think of, I think of it like this in golf, uh, Phil Diaz and I got to play, and he, he will tell you, uh, now that I made it okay to tell you, that often, I'll hit the ball left and right a, lo- a lot of times. This just happens. But it's like being on the tee box, and there's water, and somebody says, hey, whatever you do, don't hit it left. You're like, well, now I'm going to hit it left. I wasn't thinking about that. Sometimes I wish that somebody would just say to me, Some, don't hit it straight on this hole. Whatever you do, don't hit it straight. And then it might actually go that direction. It's kind of like don't step on the grass when they seed the lawn or they fertilize it. And you're just kind of like, we all have an inner toddler in us that just wants to defy authority. Don't know what it is. But this section of scripture is also a section that can be easily misconstrued as religious legalism or legalistic Christianity to somebody who's an outsider who doesn't know God or to somebody for whom religion didn't work. It looks like a list of do or don'ts and and it's not up there anymore, but I think there's at least two very important reasons that Paul writes this exhortation. And, And one is because the reality is sinful thoughts can pollute our hearts and our minds. Here's what that says. Unfiltered and uncontrolled sinful thinking corrupts the purity of innocence. Everyone was, of us was born with the innocence, just like Adam and Eve were in the garden. And that sinful thinking, that sinful actions corrupts that innocence. 
It wreaks havoc on the way that we love and value ourselves, and it wreaks havoc on the way that we love and value each other. Speak about pornography for a minute. It's not always the easiest subject to talk about, but it's very important to talk about. One might argue that it doesn't hurt anybody, so why does it matter? Well, years ago, um, one of the greatest defenses of the negative mental and emotional impacts of pornography that, that, that uh, defenses for me was when a friend told me, it might have even been Scott, they said, listen, that, that person who becomes the object of our lust and desires, that's somebody else's son or daughter. And then it impacted me then. And then, of course, when I had kids, it impacted me far more greatly. I don't want people thinking about that way about my kids. But even more importantly, the person that may become the object of our lust is a child of God. That soul doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him and the soulmate for which he called that person to be united. And so it's challenging, but Paul understands the impacts of you know, things like sexual immorality and lust. Now, there's certainly inward sins that manifest in our private lives, in our thought lives, but there's also those sins which materially impact externally the lives of others. So look with me at Colossians 3, 8 through the beginning of 9. Paul says, but now you must, he says, okay, got that far, but here's some more. You must also rid yourselves of these such things, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And he says, to polish it off, do not lie to each other. So here's a second list, and it's not exhaustive, but it's kind of exhausting because I'm like, I crossed like three or four off of those just in one car ride to church in the morning. <laughs> don't, don't say amen. You don't have to, but I know you're thinking the same thing. There's another very important reason that this exhortation was written by Paul. And, and secondly, is that sinful actions can hurt someone else. But you know what else? They, they can distance us from God. One of my dear friends uh, said to me in jest, he's not a Christian. He has a lot of Christ-like values. But he always said to me, Brian, you know why I don't go to church? He said, because there's too many sinners there. And, and that's true. And Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick, right? We're all, we all need the, the therapy of God's grace and, and his will and his word in our lives. But even if you're working really hard to live a repentant life, to be more kind and gracious and understanding, you're going to blow it. You're going to hurt somebody at some point or another, whether you meant to or not. And that's the byproduct of sin entering into humanity in the Garden of Eden. And it's not just that there's the cause and the effect on other people. It's that when we sin... The guilt and the shame that builds up inside of our hearts and our minds begins to cause us many times to run away from God, which is the very thing that we should not do. So go back to this parent and child example. When a child, it's normal, when, when, we, when we make a poor decision, it's normal to feel like we failed our parents. It, it just is. But when a, when a child makes a grave mistake, the worst thing they can do is to run away from that parent who is there ready to love them and counsel them and encourage them through that. That's the worst possible thing that can happen. And you know, Adam and Eve in the garden, they tried to hide from God too. But it, it, it's foolish, it's futile, because God, he knows everything, he sees it all. And so you know, the very best thing that you can do is go up to daddy and say, daddy, can I sit on your lap? Can we talk? And go sit on his lap and share with him where you're at and what's going on and say, Daddy, will you forgive me? And he's sure to do that, just like any good parent would for their 
son or daughter who has made a poor decision. All right, so so far it seems like Paul's just given a list of demands with no real wisdom as to how to turn that spigot of sin off. But now, here in verses 12 and 13, here comes the practical application part. So, so listen to this. Um, in, in the next verse, Paul's going to offer us a recipe about how we can honor these commands, obey God's word, and he brings to light what Jesus effectively calls the plank syndrome. I'll show you what this means. In Matthew 7, uh, verses 3 and 5, you may recognize the scripture. I call it the, the plank syndrome. So here's what it says in Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. Let me, let me document and bring to light the sin in your life. When all the time there's a giant plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So then, so Paul is doing a great thing as a disciple of Jesus. He's taking Jesus's words and his teaching, and then he's teaching it in a new way and making it relevant to the church at Colossae, just like, much like we are to you all this morning. And so In Colossians 3 here, now we're going to jump ahead to verses 12 and then 13. Here's what he says. This is sort of the antidote to the plank syndrome. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then he takes it a little bit further in verse 13. Key to today's message. He says, Bear with each other. And forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Then he says, he sums it up, he says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. The crux of this whole third chapter in Paul's letter to Colossae is the idea that we are to bear with one another. When I'm really stressed and I'm not my normal self at home, at some point in time I'll say to my wife, sweetheart, I'm going through some stuff, please bear with me. She's very gracious to do that. When my plans and my vision for what I thought was going to happen didn't happen, specifically in our businesses, I might be casting vision to our team and it didn't turn out quite the same way that we thought, I might say, hey, bear with me, guys and ladies, we're going to get this figured out. When my fellow church members disagree, when I screw up, I might go to you and say, hey, I'm really sorry, will you you please bear with me? We'll make it through this together. So let me say this a little bit differently. It's going to be very difficult for you to overlook the sins of other people if you don't prepare your mind and your heart and your spirit with an attitude of grace and reconciliation. Taking that further, it's going to be equally difficult for you to overlook the sins of other people if you're not thinking ahead about the impact and the effects of your sin, of a decision that you might make. It's a battle of hypocrisy. That's what Paul says there. And guess what? The reality is every one of us is going to unsheathe our double-edged sword at some point in our life. We're going to live with a set of double standards. It's just the way that it is. But he's saying, expect to bear with one another. So I want to show you a, a little photo here quickly. And I don't, this is from the show The Office, which I don't watch a lot, but I was processing this with uh, Scott this week. And I was trying to think of this, this example that would paint a picture. Look at this, this photo. So this is from one of the, the scenes in The Office. Now, You'll notice that the gentlemen are dressed up in, I think they're called kurti. It's, a, it's an Indian sort of robe or outfit uh, that, that they would wear at ceremonial get-togethers. 
And the lady on the right is the girlfriend of the office manager, um, and she's wearing a cheerleading outfit. And what happens is Michael Scott, the office manager, he thinks they're going to a costume party. So he tells his wife, yeah, we're going to a costume party. Well, she shows up in a cheerleading outfit to an Indian dwelly, which is you know, a ceremonial get-together. And so he, here's the thing. If you walk into a party like that, and you're the only one dressed in kind of a, a silly costume or something, you're gonna, it's going to stick out. You're going to feel a little bit exposed. You're going to feel a little embarrassed and probably pretty awkward. That's normal. And that's what it feels like sometimes when, when we mess up. We feel exposed. We feel embarrassed. Whether it's a one-on-one sin that happens with one person or, or God forbid, it's happening in a large group. Right? We feel exposed. We weren't prepared for that. And then now everybody can see that we look a certain way. Maybe silly or maybe foolish. But Paul goes on to tell us in the second part of Colossians 3.9, and I'm going to insert, since then you have been raised in Christ. Now look at what he wrote. He says, you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and in the image of its creator. Now listen, as a collective group, every single one of us is in the same boat. As a group of imperfect people and sinners, we're all in this boat. We're all trying to shed this outfit, this rain-soaked, drenched outfit, bearing the shame and the guilt of all of our past sin. We're all trying to get that off. Paul's saying, when you become a new believer in Christ, you're becoming new. So we're all trying to get this silly outfit off, if you want to call it that. We don't want to bear that burden. And that desire also ties in with Paul's appeal that we are to get rid of that old, stinky, worn-out, sinful attire and to strap on a new outfit. I was trying to visualize what would that new outfit look like. And the first idea that I had would be like, you know, like a military uniform. We're, we're all in God's army, right? We're all ambassadors of heaven. So I thought about this uniform. But then I thought, I don't think that's a good representation. You know what I think is a better one? I, I think of a, a purple robe, Purple robe of royalty. You know why? Because God sees every one of you as royal. This one's tough for me. He sees you as royalty. He, see, he says that you're a co-heir to the throne of Christ, his son, the king of kings. It's a new uniform. It's, one, it's a robe of honor and royalty that's made in the image of Christ. And the mechanism that's making this happen is this Holy Spirit that's dwelling within us. That's a capital S spirit. We're all born with a spirit like a lowercase s, the spirit of our flesh and, and our personality and all those things. But then a new spirit comes in us. And I want you to think about a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. It's an example many of us have seen in sermon illustrations, but think about how does that happen? The caterpillar doesn't just have, I mean, nobody just grabs the caterpillar and then just starts turning it into the cocoon. That happens from the inside out metamorphosis something happens on the inside produces an outward you know manifestation this cocoon and then out comes the butterfly it's a process and just to forewarn you when you take off that old and you pursue this new way of life it's highly probable you're going to find yourself walking in to a world full of corruption and you're going to feel like you stick out you're going to feel a little bit awkward it's like walking into that that room with a tuxedo or a ball gown on and nobody else is dressed that way. But don't forget that Jesus commanded every one of us to be holy and set apart. 
He said, don't conform to the ways of the world. Look, act, speak, love differently. So be ready when he's going to clothe you with this new outfit that you're going to step into this world full of corruption and it might look and feel a little bit awkward at times. It's okay. And ultimately, that consistent awareness of how your sin or poor attitude impacts others, that's the antidote for a world lacking peace and humility. Humility, rather. Well, humidity today, but also humility. Um, before we wrap up and take communion, uh, I want to take a quick moment, and, and I want to jog our memories as well to Jesus' words in Matthew six fourteen and 15. And here's what Jesus told his disciples. He said, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' sins, look at it, your Father will not forgive your sins. There's a clear requisite here, friends. And so just ponder for a minute, how did the Lord forgive you and me? Well, he clearly knows that we made some poor decisions. He knows it, despite maybe knowing better. And the bad news is that that he is the judge and that he can pass judgment and say you are guilty. But you know what he does? He pardons us and he says, you know what? Through the blood of Jesus, I will uh, declare you not guilty. I don't know that he necessarily forgets the sin, but he simply chooses to pardon us. And so shouldn't we be doing the same? There's a lot of opinions out there on whether forgiving sins means forgetting the pain of that sin, but here's one thing I'm very confident in. When you remember the hurt and the pain that somebody else's sin causes you, you will be a little more hesitant to make that same discretionary you know, action or error of uh, omission or commission upon somebody else. And we're going to get ready for communion here, but I want to read this shortly to you. This is from the the commentary section on BibleStudyTools.com. If you've never used that resource, it's really cool. And I don't know who wrote this, but I want you to listen to this about this this scripture here in, in Colossians 3. We must not only avoid causing hurt to others, but we are to do what good we can to everyone. Those who are the elect of God, holy and beloved, ought to be lowly and compassionate towards all. While in this world, while there is so much corruption in our hearts, quarrels will sometimes happen. But it's our duty to forgive one another, imitating the forgiveness through which we are saved. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. It's of his working in all who are his. Thanksgiving to God who helps us uh, to be agreeable to all men. And here it is. The gospel is the word of Christ. Many have the word but it dwells in them poorly. It has no power over them. The soul prospers when we are full of the scriptures and the grace of God. And Paul brings this all together in the last little section. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So the greatest communities and specifically the greatest church communities in the world are those built on the foundation that we will give grace to one another. We are not going to agree on everything, but we will overlook those disagreements, we will overlook those sins and we will forgive one another. And when you're prepared in advance with the mindset that you will give grace to someone because you know that you'll need grace at some point in time, that's the way for healthy relationships. So we're going to take communion this morning. I'm going to ask you to come up and and grab the cup and grab the bread and go back to your seats. But as you're doing this, we're going to have a a few minutes of, of worship. I want you to think about something really deeply. The night before he was uh, betrayed, Jesus bore with specifically three people, 
I mean, 12, but one who uh, was going to betray him and turn him in, uh, one who was going to deny him before everybody shortly after that, and then one who was going to doubt him when he came back to the earth. But he told them he loved them, and he wanted them to gather and remember him while putting aside their failures and sins. So as you come up and get these elements, go back to your seat. I want you to take some time and really reflect about the things that have happened in your life and things that you need to be put before the Lord because his blood's going to cover it today. So come up and get the elements, go back to your seat, and then we're going to take communion together.
was over there working it out with the Lord. Thanks for your patience. The night Jesus um, was betrayed before he went to the cross, he, he took some bread and he broke it to pieces. And he told his disciples, he said, my body is going to be beaten badly and it's going to be broken. He said, I'm going to do this for you. And so he says, I want you to do this often and you remember me. So let's take the bread together. And then right after that, he took a cup of the wine and he said, soon my blood is going to be poured out. It's going to be shed for you and it's going to cover all of your sins. You're going to be made right with the Father. And he says, drink and remember me. So let's take the cup. Father, thank you for loving us no matter what. Thank you for lavishing your grace upon us. Thank you for allowing us to be in your company and to have an eternal place, a home with you in heaven. Let your spirit dwell with us, guide us, convict us, and comfort us. And let the church across the world be one of unity, of grace, and unconditional love. We celebrate you today. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.